Welcome to another episode of the Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders on Washington, Wall Street, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is the ninth day of February. Ninth day of February. Earnings season has been rolling along just fine, just fine. Not on fire. You know, it's been kind of a little Goldilocks in the maybe just right to a little cool area if we're going to go back to our nursery stories. Uh, and we've had a big week because we've had the state of we've had the state of the union. We've seen chat GPT. We've seen Disney's earnings last night. We've seen good stuff and bad stuff. We've seen Microsoft do very, very well. We've seen Google not do as well, all in the headlines and political noise all over the place. But Joe Biden had a pretty good night for most reports. Joe Biden had a pretty good night. What does it mean for markets here? Because Jay Powell also spoke this week and Jay Powell used that word again, disinflation. Uh, you 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 remember when when he said that he that he thought that uh, inflation was going to be transitory? Transitory was his word, and he worked that word transitory into a bunch of speeches. And I guess people liked it or didn't like it, or now we misunderstood it, or something like that. But I think the word we're misunderstanding right now is disinflation. Uh, that's what I told Nick Timoros at yes yesterday's Wall Street Journal article uh, that. Uh, Jay Powell keeps saying, I really, really, really mean it this time. And yet he uses that word disinflationary, just recognizing that the prices of some things are indeed coming down. And he immediately says the prices of core like services and rent and things that just don't turn over very quickly and wages continue to rise and they're going to continue to stay longer at the party and that that, that half a million job gain made him jump a job gain made him jump so uh the market hears what it wants to hear i'm giving a speech tomorrow in miami to the ypo world economic forum it's a speech they've invited me back this will be my fifth time speaking to this group and the uh, title of my speech is rain dances and other market strategies rain dances and other market strategies you know, and what I found is, folks, it's not so much the quality of the dance as it is the timing of the dance. Uh, and you do four or five of them and you really mess it up. You get your shaman rear end thrown into the volcano. It's not a good outcome. So uh, I don't think a rain dance is really a good strategy. Uh, we do need a good strategy. It should be a long term strategy. And when I want to find out what's going on in markets like you, I think what's Kenny Polcari going to tell us? Kenny Polcari is the CEO of Case Capital Advisors. Uh, welcome back, Kenny. Michael, it's a pleasure. It is really a pleasure. I love doing this with you every couple of weeks. I find it interesting and I find it engaging. So thanks for having me. Uh, you're always very engaging and I've been loving seeing you on Fox, dude. It's like you're on every day now. Yeah, uh, thank you. It, I, yeah, it's it's great. Uh, all right, Kenny. Kenny. Uh, is the market not hearing it or is far just being an old curmudgeon saying uh, harumph and I don't no, no, like what I'm hearing? You and I are in the same camp. I don't think the market's hearing it. And especially, did you see what happened yesterday? The conversation is now starting to have a six in it, right? They indicated a 6% terminal rate that they're starting to think maybe that's where it's got to go. They're trying to warn investors. They're trying to warn the market that this pivot, that the market seems to think is happening because Jay Powell says the word disinflation. Oh, it's going to be over. We're going to be near the end. You and I have been saying it. I don't think we're, we are closer to the end, but we're not at the end, right? We're not there yet. It's not going to be. It wasn't January, February. It's not going to be the March meeting. I thought it was going to be the May meeting, but now there's a chance that it goes beyond that. In order to get to, to the 6% terminal rate, they got to hike for five more sessions at 25 basis points, if that's how they're going to do it. Stock market's I, one of those crazy places, though, Kenny, where two investors can look at exactly the same scene and give you a completely different story and agree. not agree on what they see. Because when you and I say what we're saying and say, look, folks, this is this is slowing down and the rate increases so far are still, they do have a lag effect. 
you haven't seen it yet and you're already seeing a slowing, you get the other uh, rose colored, I call them the rose colored grass glasses crowd who say, no, you're wrong. Uh, uh, unemployment is still really low and the consumer's really strong. The consumer's still spending. The consumer's <laughs> spending on credit and they're right. spending big time and the consumer's running out of money and they go, no, airline ticket sales are still really way up. Kenny, you were talking before we came on about Disney ticket sales, but we also saw the earnings out of Mattel and the toy manufacturers. Barbie and Ken didn't sell. Uh, right. Consumers are running out of money and credit card balances are through the roof. So one of us is going to be right. And if I'm paying attention to the consumer's wallet, which yeah. is looking awful empty to me right now, right. Uh, this is slowing down. What Are we going to be wrong about this, Kenny? No, I don't think you and I are going to be wrong. Look, I, I love to be optimistic. And long-term, like you, I am always optimistic. Always I optimistic. To, I think the place to be is in stocks for sure. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be some volatility. And I think, as this conversation is, let's see what Waller says tomorrow, because he's the one that started to float this 6% number. And by the way, there are two things I want to just say. The Atlanta Fed sticky inflation, just like you said at the beginning of your monologue, remains high year over year. The sticky stuff is the stuff that we need every day, not used cars and TVs. How many times are you buying those? But you got to go every day and buy steak and fish and chicken and 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 and, and food, right? You got to pay your utility bills. Those prices don't come down once they go up. They don't come down that quickly. And that's the sticky part. So that's number one. But number two is that there was an article in Bloomberg making, a, making an observation that in the interest rate market, someone whether it's an institution, I believe it's an institution, is making a bet that the terminal rate's going to 6% by September. And if they're right, that bet is going to pay off $135 million if they're right. That seems like a fairly substantial bet. Big. So Big. I would suggest that people should start listening to the Fed because either this guy knows something, he or she, man or woman, either they're connected to somebody on the inside or they're just listening to what the Fed is saying. And they're looking at the data and they're seeing how the economy is slowing down. And to your point, the consumer is getting stretched. And by the way, we haven't even talked about HELOC loans that are, you know, home equity loans that are that are usually, you know, prime plus, you know, some low rate, but then they adjust up. Those numbers are starting to tick up. And I think I told you this the last time I was interviewing somebody who said that his HELOC rate went from, you know, one and a half percent payment because it's just payment on the on the on the bounce to more than 7% after these hikes have gone up. He said, so it's made a significant impact on his monthly budget. And I talked, so to, that I talked to a uh, young man yesterday, and of course this is anecdotal, yeah. uh, getting ready to have the second uh, baby. And he said, you know, I need, I'm gonna need to buy a bigger car. He said, I was ready to buy a boat, Mr. Favre. Always, right. we live near the water, I wanted to buy a boat. I'm not going to buy a boat right now because I now need a bigger car and right. I need a bigger house. And when I look at getting a bigger house, he said, I've got a 2.6% mortgage on my current house that's too small. I'm looking at paying, you know, almost 6% for a new mortgage. I can't really figure out how I'm going to afford the house that I need at 6% and the car that I need. Uh, and these things change decisions of and consumers. And listen, and the increased utility bill and the increased yes. maintenance bill and the yes. increased, you know, all that. You and I both know that when you go from a 1500 square foot apartment to a 3000 square foot house, suddenly everything gets bigger. We've gone from this notion at the end of December uh, or sort of early in December that we were going to have a hard landing. December, right. there was discussion of a hard landing. And then it, we, it changed. No, it's going to be a soft landing, soft right. landing. And now it's sort of like we're not going to have a landing at all, right? <laughs> I mean, Jay Powell can sit there and talk about, you know, uh, whether it's a transitory or disinflation or whatever, as long as they do what they do and markets keep going up and we don't ever have to change a thing. I just, and uh, we, there's no landing. Which Listen, Jay Powell doesn't want to see the market keep going up. That actually works against it. Him, right? He's does. trying to control it. And look, I don't think it's going to be a soft landing. You and I, I never thought it was going to be a soft landing. I think this is going to be a long landing. It's going to get drawn out. I wish it would have been something that was like fast and over and that crushed it and that's it. And then we started to build again. But I think it's actually going to be this rolling recession that's going to be tough on everybody, right? It's, it's going to be long. Okay, so here's here's the thing, uh, ladies and gentlemen. If you look at the economic data 
uh, and the parts that are staying stubborn in terms of inflation, then the Fed can't back off anytime soon. If the Fed doesn't back off and this consumer continues to weaken as they continue to raise rates and make credit cards and everything else more expensive to get to money, then the economy will slow. We will have this recession. And when you have a recession, lots of things happen in a very predictable, like guaranteed way. And one of them is a contraction on S&P 500 earnings. Those things come down. Think about the profit margins for an S&P 500 company. There are two things that are big, what they pay for employees and what they pay to borrow money. What they pay for employees is still going up every day, which means their profit margins are going down. uh, And as they pay more to borrow money, their profit margins go down. What do they do? They increase prices. And when they do it, they're going to try and overshoot. They want to overshoot as much as they can and see how long they can be profitable. But at some point, no matter what happens to their costs, they reach a point of price inelasticity, price inelasticity, where they realize they can't make the price of a Big Mac nine damn dollars because nobody's going to buy a Big Mac for nine dollars. Now, the day will come, I promise, could even happen in our lifetimes, Kenny, where the price of a Big Mac does go to nine dollars. I hope not. But- Uh, These things, we see these forces converging. Pokhari and I have seen this before. We've been to this show before. And the average age of the professional on Wall Street right now is 32 or 33 years old. They have not seen a bear market. They have not seen a recession. Listen to Pokhari. And And they haven't seen, by the way, Michael, they haven't seen normal interest rates. No. Yeah, what are normal? 5%, 6%? They haven't seen it because when... Because when they came into it, we were we were in the middle of the, the crisis. Rates went to zero and it stayed there for 13 years. I got a steal on my first mortgage, Kenny, a steal at 8.6%. That was on, a steal. On a your steal. very first mortgage? On my very first mortgage. That Mine was, was 15.5% 1983. Uh, I didn't buy the house until 1990. Uh, yes. or ni- 1983. No. Yeah, 1990, 1989, something like that. And I got 8.6%. And it was like I got away with murder. Absolutely. You're smart. See, you're smarter than me. You waited. Smart. I'm smart. Uh, Fred and Ethel, tell me what Fred and Ethel think that you're smart, even though you talk funny. What should give me some advice for Fred and Listen, I'm, advice I'm like for Fred you. If you have a well designed and balanced portfolio, there's no reason if they want to run them up, let it run up, go along for the ride. I'm not chasing anything up here at all. I'm I'm a buyer on uh, on pullbacks as long as the fundamental story of the names I own don't change. I'm overweight at the moment in the stuff that people need. During a tougher time, so it's consumer stables, it's healthcare, it's utilities, it's energy, right? Um, I, I'm I'm kind of uh, adding some technology to that because I think you have to have some technology, but not crazy. But I think at the Fred Net though, just need to stick to the plan and they need to make sure that they're well balanced. And look, if you're a little bit nervous over time, you can put your money into short duration T bills, right? Guaranteed well, principal. What's wrong and with four point eight percent? Four point eight percent on a six-month bill. There's nothing absolutely wrong nothing. With absolutely, yeah, it's four point eight percent because you know I I had this conversation. It's four point eight percent annualized on a six-month yes. bill. So for yes. six months, it's half of that, right? So it's still two point three or whatever the number is, right? But it offers you security and stability and no fear of loss of principal. So uh, we think about this long term, and by the way. Discipline and dispassion have got to be your constant companions through periods like this, because the month of January was run away for the risk trade. And everybody who owns what Kenny and I own, these stable blue chip companies have been left behind. We haven't kept up with the NASDAQ uh, uh, performance at all. It's taken off Uh, longer term. uh, If you go into recession, if you go into this downturn, when you go into a downturn, you want to own the stuff that has cash and cash flow and a solid balance sheet. Um, and you don't get pulled out of your positions just because the market runs up for 30 days. Yeah, but yeah, Michael, it's hard. But you, you know, it's important, what's important about what you just said that needs to be that needs to be clarified. 
Tell me. Because, yes, you and I, because the, the NASDAQ's running away, you know, up 14, 14% year to date. And I might be underperforming it right now, the NASDAQ. I mean, the, yeah. uh, the, you know, the, the broader yeah. market, because the S&P's up 7%. I'm about there. But last year, when the NASDAQ was down 35%, you and I were beating that. We weren't down 35%. Why? Because we had those boring, big, beautiful cash flow names. So we were not down. 30, the same the same way the market was last year, right? My job has never been to outperform for the next 30 days. My that's job right. has been to outperform over the 30 years. Perfect. And that's my focus. That's the charge that my clients have given me. Michael, keep us safe. Keep it growing best as you can. And never leave me hanging out there in the thin branches of risk. Kenny Polcari is CEO of Case Capital Advisors, was the voice for many years of the New York Stock Exchange. Now he seems to be the voice of Fox News. He's my great friend. Kenny, thanks. Mike, it's always a pleasure. And well, I look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks. I do too. We're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey. Please stay with us. Thank you for joining us this week on The Farcast. Now it's time for political analyst Dan Mahaffey and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on the Farcast. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you, Michael. Good morning. Good to be talking to you. Good morning on the Farcast. We cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world in a double header today with Dan Mahaffey, of course, every week providing his insights and coming up in segment three. Greg Valier, one of our greatest friends, uh, Washington insider for many years, and a keen analyst of how Washington and the world affect Wall Street. So we've got a doubleheader for you here this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the State of the Union, Dan, um, expectations were low, and it seems that President Biden really exceeded them, maybe mm -hmm. not spectacularly, but a better outcome than most people thought. Mm -hmm. I think Biden, we've discussed how his uh, past background, he does face that uh, stutter, stammer issue. Public speaking has never been something he's looked at. And we'll be honest, at his age, uh, you've seen definitely him go down a step or gear, as it were, from what we knew as Senator Biden or even Vice President Biden. That said, the State of the Union, by all accounts, I would say it was a success for the president. He emphasized the get the job done message. He delivered his points well. Uh, as we were discussing before we came on, look, President Trump complimented him on the night. And the, yes. the behavior or and decorum or lack thereof among some Republicans was the foil he wanted in a message of, look, I'm governing maturely. You might not like what I've done, but the benefits of what we're doing, you'll feel them soon. And, oh, by the way, even if you disagree with me, who can you trust on the other side to be in charge? It was a strong message. And, yeah, you know that comment out of President, uh, former President Trump. Uh, he said, quotes, I disagree with Biden on most of his policies, but he put into words what he felt, and he ended up the evening far stronger than he began. Give him credit for that. Uh, that was on President, former President Trump's Truth Social website. That's a, quite a comment. I can't remember many of those sort of complimentary conciliatory remarks from President Trump uh, about uh, his opponents in the past. Can you remember many? Uh, can you think of, of other examples? I want to make sure that I'm being fair when, uh, when, I, when, when I say that that's uh, really something new to me from President, uh, former President Trump. Uh, I, I would actually agree with that. That is the one that actually probably should be framed or made into an NFT or whatever, because that's the one that's pretty darn rare. Do you think that that could indicate perhaps a differing change of strategy for President Trump as he uh, as he's trying to run again and announcing for president again? Um, I don't I wouldn't go that far because, look, we're already seeing some other stuff where he's taking a very different tone with Ron DeSantis uh, already kind of I don't want to even get into it, but just salacious social material, uh, social media gossip uh, that he's putting out there about Ron DeSantis. I don't think the leopards changed his spots at all here. 
maybe just acknowledging this in a in a moment of clarity. Uh, but no, I don't think the tenor out of Mar-a-Lago is going to change, particularly, too, if you get more Republicans jumping in that he wants to clear out of the field. It's so from your uh, beginning and introduction to today's segment, Dan, uh, you clearly feel like President Biden not only uh, had a successful State of the Union, but had a pretty solid message, uh, it sounds like, overall. The Republican response seems to be a bit of a scramble. Uh, how would you describe that? And what exactly well, has been the, the Republicans' response other than Biden's old? Sure, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll one go, the, the one critique before we get to the Republican response that I will deliver on Biden's uh, speech, and I will caveat this, the State of the Union has become a far more domestic speech than it used to be. I would like to have heard more from him on Ukraine, on the China competition, those things. Um, and hopefully maybe he makes a separate speech on those soon. That'd be my one quibble there. And I think also, too, about the Republican response. There was very little there. Uh, the Republican response, as you noted, yeah, I would it was kind of like if this was, I'll use the metaphor, if this was campaigning season, they're starting their approach like a scramble shotgun start to a golf tournament. They're kind of teeing off on every message at once and trying to see who plays best uh, at getting to 2024. So is it wokeism? Is it schools? Is it inflation? Is it COVID response? Look, I, I, they still, I think, feel that they're in a strong position going into 2024. But after the disappointment of 2022, where they thought they had a, a president like Biden weak on the ropes, they were counting the 30 and 40 seat majority. Many pundits like myself were, too. Uh, that disappointment with how their messages landed in 2022 has them trying to figure out what's going to work in 2024. And that's what we saw with this response, I feel. One, that you tried to go with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and the optics of that are someone, you know, obviously a, a female governor, the, the youngest governor now in America, uh, but also one who's still very much in, in a close uh warm relationship with Trump world, as it were. So uh, trying to find that needle to thread and sign and trying to find what messages work, it's kind of the Republican Party's challenge now for 2024, uh, all the while with the presumption that Trump is still the front runner for, for the nomination. Can, uh, can DeSantis stay bulletproof through the Trump barrage here? I mean, he seems to have risen above it so far, and his base and a lot of the Republican base just don't seem to care about all of the hand grenades that Trump's going to throw because they're recognized as hand grenades before they leave his hand. Well, there's that. I think there's also a, a sense of now having seen this for uh, more than six years, you they they know what kind of poncho they're going to have to put in once Trump starts flinging mud and, and other material once they enter the ring. Uh, that said, though, uh, DeSantis's question, one, he's benefited from there being no other alternative. He is the alternative right now. How long, though, before people really start to look under the hood of his record in Florida and what has gone into that state? Look, you hear stories now starting to get out about how uh, has DeSantis used uh, county prosecutors to go after political opponents? Uh, what other types of things has DeSantis done? And also his culture war stuff. I don't know how far that goes. When you hear about these forms, uh, paperwork in Florida that high school girls have to sign down their menstruation history now before they participate in high school athletics. Those are the kinds of culture war things that play well with DeSantis's base, but really are going to land flat around the country, I think. Okay, well, we will watch and see uh, President Biden now looking like a more viable candidate, and certainly if he announces, going to be tough not to get that nomination. You agree with that? Look, I he's done well out of this State of the Union. I find it interesting that the, the data, if we're trusting polling data, uh, is telling me that Democrats are more dissatisfied with Biden running for re-election than Republicans are with Trump coming back a second time. Uh, that's uh, that's it's that's very interesting that the Democrats really are uh, less satisfied with him staying. You know, the one thing you always get at the State of the Union, and I don't know if you watched it, dear listeners, but uh, you can even look at one of the still shots. Uh, you've got Kevin McCarthy over the right shoulder 
uh, uh, to his right, it's actually over his left shoulder, over his right shoulder is the vice president, uh, Harris. And in that you have the immediate line of succession for the leader of the free world, uh, left to right on your viewing screen. So with President Biden at 80 years old and 82 by the time he would become president again, uh, and 86 to serve that term, most folks seeing something of a slip in the president's step in the past couple of years that seemed to uh, be consistent with his age, uh, uh, seemed to be consistent with his age, uh, you begin to say, uh, we ought to pay close attention to that Vice President Harris over the other shoulder. So if he runs again, tell me, about how the Democrats feel about Vice President Harris, and will she stay on that ticket? Mm. Uh, I think she does, because again, I don't see the clear alternative yet, nor do I see a uh, a clean way of changing this out unless somehow she decided she didn't want to do that, but all indicators are she's on board for another run. Okay. And finally, Dan, uh, when I came back Saturday uh, afternoon from South Carolina, we were on a ground stop flight delay because there was this balloon, which we could see. Mm. Uh, and we could see it and we could see it and then we couldn't see it. Um, uh, tell me about the politics of this balloon and what this means with China. Mm -hmm. Look, one, I think this really sets back the efforts that there had been to put a floor under the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, Secretary Blinken's trip that was canceled was a very important one. I think one where the Secretary of State was really going to sit down and explain U.S. interests to Xi and try and find ways to, to de-conflict or reduce tensions. Uh, and this went in the exact opposite direction. And to start first with the Chinese politics, I'm interested to know, did she know whether this was going to be launched uh, or are there uh, lower level officials who are facing his wrath uh, for doing this? On the other hand, on the U.S. side, look, does it look great that this uh, went over our territory for four days? I get that criticism. Uh, there were others who will say, look, this was the military advice to not shoot it down yet, that there were ways to mitigate uh, what it could collect, as well as an opportunity to closely study this while it was over our airspace. Um, finally, that they did shoot it down. You know, we've We've been laughing about this. Look, uh, Congressman George Santos got up there and shot down that balloon. It was his fifth. Uh, it was his fifth uh, kill. So he's now a fighter ace. But all all joking aside, on the politics of this, um, look, it was one of those ones where we are now going to see U.S.-China relations again. Both parties trying to outdo who is harder on them. We're going to see more of this pushback on on tech and the tech competition with China. So more export controls, things like that. Uh, but what this did is really put more fuel on a already febrile mood in Congress when it comes to China. Uh, and look, even if there's critiques of when it was shot down, both parties are united in their anger over what Beijing has done. Think about the effects of the global politics, international politics that we discuss here on the forecast and what that means for business and the economy. So, uh, how much will commerce increase with China over the next five years? Do you think it will be more? Do you think it will grow as quickly as it may have grown uh, five years ago? I think with these pressures, uh, with the conflict we now have and with the tensions heating up, uh, business with China is going to be much harder. Uh, maybe business for China around the world, much more difficult. So this is a headwind to economic growth. It's a headwind to commerce. It's a head to US, headwind to U.S. profits. There are certain headwinds to profits that are absolutely worth it when it comes to our national security. They will come first and foremost. But now we have everybody on the same page. You don't have a one hand and other hand sort of a approach to say, well, yes, everything, uh, everything with China isn't bad. There are some good things with China, and here they are. We've given up our good list, haven't we? We've gone all to the dark side of the boat when it comes to China. Every politician agrees this is a dangerous time uh, and conflicts that are already heated can become ignited very quickly. Just pay attention, folks. Just because it grinds on and on and sounds this negative hot China talk 
doesn't mean that you can ignore it for a second because it will demand full focus front and center at the least convenient moment. Dan, final word. I've got to go. Sorry. Uh, looking ahead, we're seeing these investigations start with the committees now that the Republicans have the gavel in the House. Uh, let's see what resonates. Again, they're moving with a lot of messages, uh, but also be aware there's going to be some companies, uh, tech I'm looking at as well, they're going to have their time in the barrel before these committees. So that's going to be an impact too. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst now in season six of the Farcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with Greg Valliere. We're going to hear more about what he thinks about Washington and the world and how it's going to affect our portfolios when we return on the Farcast. Please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of the Farcast. Please share us with friends and colleagues. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining us now, a Farcast fan favorite, our great friend, Greg Valliere. Greg has followed Washington for investors for over 40 years. Greg and I, I think, first appeared together on Wall Street Week. Yep. Uh, we we went uh, all the way over towards uh, uh, Baltimore. What was the name of that little town? Uh, Owings Mills, Owings Maryland. Mill. Owings yep. Mills, Maryland. And we would have to tape that show. It was a live-to-tape show and the car would come and pick us up at around 3, 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon to tape at 5. And they had a green room is what they called it. It was this little windowless conference room with straight back chairs. They'd sit us in there with like Chinese food and say, wait. Yep. <laughs> and then they'd yep. pull us out. And so we started doing that, damn, almost 25, 30 years ago, didn't we, Greg? Something like that. Quite a while, absolutely. With yep. Lou Rukeyser, yep. Lou Rukeyser. And if you were in our business, ladies and gentlemen, that was your must watch every week. You had to watch. There was no uh, CNBC. Uh, it was it was nascent. Uh, people were not doing financial television. There was really not cable. There was no internet. And you had to watch Louis Rukeyser if you wanted to stay informed. He had great guests. Um, and in addition to those great guests, well, he had great guests. He had Greg Valliere. And in addition to those great guests, he had me. Uh, which was always a great privilege. Yep. So, Greg, yep. you've seen him on CNN, Fox, Bloomberg, all of these other things. Lives in Washington, D.C. He's currently uh, chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments, which is a Canadian firm up in Toronto. Greg, welcome back to the Farcast. Great to be with you, Michael. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. Gosh, we have a lot to cover today. Uh, State of Union behind us. It was a good showing for President Biden. Uh, Tell us what you think the implications are that he actually exceeded expectations. Well, on some things, Michael, he, he went populist because he had to throw a bone or two to the populace. So he talked about the uh, energy industry disparagingly. He talked about taxing the very wealthy. All of that stuff's not going to make it. Uh, those proposals will die in the House. I, I think the, the key factor here was what did the State of the Union address say about the debt ceiling crisis? And it could be a genuine crisis if we're talking about the government defaulting later this summer. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't really offer a lot of hope. It still is at the uh, acrimonious stage, and it may stay at that stage for several more months. Uh, it seems to me, Greg, that there just seems to be a battle on Capitol Hill now to see who can get to the populist message first. Uh, yep. Or who can figure out the 
populist message of their particular uh, conservative or liberal uh, cohort and base. But it's the populist message and that seems to be driving. It's 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 the catnip, the search for political catnip that seems to be driving so many politicians. And we don't hear that talk, and maybe we didn't hear it as much. I'm, I'm, I really want to ask you this. I mean, I'm hearkening back to my Tip O'Neill days saying, you know, there was a discussion of what was right and what needed to be done. And maybe I'm making that up through rosy rearview windows. Well, you know, part of it is how difficult it is to come up with a prescription that, that makes sense. Uh, for example, uh, on the budget, if you really believe we should balance the budget, and I hear that from clients all the time, why can't we do it? Well, let's get specific. Uh, are we going to cut entitlements? No. Uh, that means Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid are not going to be changed. I think that was a big message from the other night. Are we going to cut defense? No. There's a lot of bad players out there in the world. Uh, are we going to raise taxes? No, that would never make it in the House. We're not going to change the estate tax, capital gains, none of that stuff. So you're down to 16% of discretionary spending. That's it in the budget for everything, the FBI, uh, parks, education. And even if you cut that part of the budget in half, you would still be running a deficit. Right now, we're projecting $1 trillion a year at a minimum for the next 10 years in deficits and the total us debt right now is 31.4 trillion and maybe we could level things off maybe there'd be a, a cap on spending but there's no easy panacea well but greg can't we i mean we can't seem to find anybody who, who's willing to be responsible as i talk to clients as i've talked to clients for 35 years when they get in a position of spending well above their means we have a real heart to heart most listen, a few don't, and say, I need to belong to that country club. My children have to go to that private school. I have to drive a Mercedes. This is just what you do in Washington. I really have heard that exact discussion. People have said just those words to me. And therefore, I can't live on my $200,000 a year law firm income. And I think, am I the only one listening to you that thinks you're crazy? I mean, if you're making $200,000 a year, I don't care what any of those reasons are. You figure out if you've got a brain in your head how to live on $150,000 a year and put some in the bank for rainy days. So what I'm my point here, Greg, is if we see that we have this systemic imbalance, this approach that says we can't address these things at some point becomes ridiculous. I understand politically untenable, but discretionary... I mean, so let, let's let's talk uh, about entitlement spending, Social Security, Medicare. What if all they did was increase the retirement age to 68? That mm -hmm. would hugely cure a problem we have with Social Security. I mean, we don't have to start taking money out of old people's pocketbooks on a monthly basis. We could make that change phase in over the next and take it up and and uh, to the to the uh, average lifespan in this country. Can't we do something like that? Can't somebody figure out a plan to get something done there? It is so damned easy to demagogue on this issue and say, oh, my God. I really people. enjoyed it, by the way. Yes. <laughs> you you look at well, look at France, look at Macron. I mean, it, it's difficult to force people to make this kind of a sacrifice. And they uh, they want everything. Uh, look at Paul Ryan. Before he left Congress, he had a very modest and frankly sensible plan that would yes. just tinker slightly with the COLA, the cost of living adjustment, be a slight change in the inflation index. He was vilified for saying that in both parties. Donald Trump wanted to spend more. In both parties, I can count on one hand the dominant players who have said, let's maybe reform social security it is kryptonite and you know the old cliche about tip o'neill you know calling it the third rail is true you touch yeah. it and you're you get electrocuted and it's all because we continue to demand what we want to demand and the voting yeah. public throws a tantrum if i don't get what i don't want and these guys don't yeah. get reelected. and yet we have $31 trillion in debt in a $23 trillion GDP economy, and that debt is growing, and we're adding a trillion a year. We're adding a trillion a year, and interest rates are going up, so the cost of that debt is taking more out of the servicing the debt, is taking more out of prospective money that we could invest 
that would enhance GDP growth. We're, we're doing it to ourselves. We're cutting our own Achilles tendon as we're walking. It just seems so silly. You know, one of the sleeper issues here, Michael, is debt servicing costs, which you just referred to. Uh, debt servicing costs are up to about 8% of the total budget. That's a lot of money. And unfortunately, it may go higher in the next year or two. Yep. Okay. So uh, good. Uh, he had a good State of the Union. Uh, the Republican response seems to have been all over the place. Uh, Dan Mahaffey described it as sort of a shotgun start for a golf tournament, everybody taking off in a different direction from a different hole. Right. Uh, uh, did you hear any consensus out of the Republicans and what's their response to all of this? Well, I'd, I'd say it was a good State of the Union in that Biden looked like the adult in the room to a certain extent. And the Republicans had, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, screaming out liar. You've got this uh, this lying congressman from Long Island who is an embarrassment to the party. He got in a, in a you know, ker kerfuffle with uh, Mitt Romney. So the, the Republicans are, are very divided. You saw Kevin McCarthy trying to shush them. And uh, they're not listening to Kevin McCarthy. That was not a hard try at a shush. That was sort of an was, oh, yeah. a little embarrassed, yeah. a little uh, blushing shush. Oh, maybe you yeah. shouldn't be doing it. And by the way, I want to just mention Mitt Romney. Good for you, Mitt Romney. You called that jerk a liar and a jerk and told him to get out. And good for you. Here's a senior Republican standing yeah. up to a very junior yeah. Republican who shouldn't be there at all. I, I just I, I, so, it was one of those admirable moments, I thought, for Mitt. So the party, yes, and the party soon will face the very dilemma you and I just talked about a couple of minutes ago. They have to come up with a budget, and I'll be I'll be damned if I can figure out what their budget is going to show. Uh, I think they're going to go for an across the board freeze, uh, rather than to plunge into every single federal program. But this is a, a divided party. Uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't get along with House members. House members don't get along with each other. Uh, it's going to be a, a complication in trying to get anything done this year. Which is a good segue into this debt limit issue, which we have reached as a nation. And Janet Yellen, as Treasury Secretary, is doing all of those back room machinations to keep our bills paid, and she will run out of options, levers to pull, eh, end of June, maybe-ish, maybe middle of July, somewhere in there, right? So yeah. what happens there? Uh, we know we hear both sides already posturing, but nobody actually doing anything about the debt ceiling. Three things are possible. One is we default. I think that would be disastrous. I think internationally we would lose a great deal of stature. Number two is that we prioritize. A lot of Republicans are saying, well, let's just spend the money we have to spend. Social Security, veterans, benefits, things like that, and the rest will languish. Uh, number three, it's a long shot, but I don't rule this out. Number three is that uh, Jerome Powell, with great reluctance, has to have the Fed buy bonds that are about to default. Uh, he has said publicly it is a loathsome uh, option. He doesn't want to even think about it. He certainly won't encourage any uh, belief in it. But if we face a default, a literal, literal default tomorrow, I think the Fed would have to jump in. Let's harken back to 2011, because both of us remember it uh, as about as well as we remember anything from 12 years ago, which, you know, I mean, we were there, but it was still 12 years ago. And the expectation in this fight that occurred through the summer of 2011 uh, was that the U.S. might default uh, and also that the U.S. debt could be, uh, could be downgraded. These were unthinkable things. And the the projections from Wall Street were that interest rates would soar, bond prices would fall, and it would be sort of an end of the world market moment. Um, indeed, the debt was downgraded. They didn't ultimately, of course, end up defaulting. They took us to a sort of brink, which I bet looks pretty rosy when we compare it to what we're about to see this year. Uh, but indeed, the opposite happened. Uh, the bond market rallied and interest rates went down after yeah. the debt was downgraded, it was the damnedest thing I've ever seen because it just made no logical sense, except that I guess it meant we didn't default. Maybe that's what markets were expecting. So how do you handicap, if you're talking to investors, this whole process as you look at it over the summer going into the fall? I've heard of a fourth option too, Greg, 
and I think I actually heard it from you, that they would actually kick the can down the road and make just buy themselves another couple of months and make this uh, 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 to, uh, coincident with the uh, budget talks uh, coming yeah. in October. Can't rule it out. Everybody loves to kick the can in, in this city. Uh, I guess there's still another option, and that is there's a deal. So how does this end? Yeah, uh, I think at some point, Michael, there there will have to be not a huge meat axe cuts, but an across the board spending freeze. I think you, we all remember Graham Rudman and various other things that yep. basically froze spending. I think something like that may wind up being part of the solution. It's going to be uh, vehemently opposed, especially by uh, the Democrats. And it's got to have some carve outs. There's got to be a carve out for defense. My God, there's so many bad actors in the world. You know, Putin, you know, the Ayatollahs, uh, Z. We're going to have to continue spending money on defense. But uh, I, I don't think we get this uh, end game until well, the earliest would be right before the August recess. I think that they, they may try to get something done then, or it may drag on, as you say, until a fight also on the new budget on October 1. This adds a lot more volatility to markets that we're not in yet as this heats up, ladies and gentlemen. We cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, and we try to figure out how this is all going to influence the economy, and then earnings and markets and how it's going to affect investors in the short term and uh, the long term. Long term, I remain always perpetually bullish as an American, as I do about America. Uh, but uh, rough road ahead is what we're bracing ourselves uh, uh, to endure. All right, uh, Greg, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm already out of time, but I'm going to go to extended time right now because I've got a couple of other things I just have to cover yeah. with you. Um, one is uh, we we had our uh, weather balloon, not a spy balloon that somehow got off course. Sure it did. And we shoot it down. And now Blanken doesn't go to China. Tell us about Chinese, the Chinese relationship. Everybody in Washington seems to agree that we all hate China and we're going to even be tougher on China. China is a big trading partner with the U.S. This is not great for our economic prospects here. And is there a chance Final question. I know I just threw three at you. Uh, uh, final question. Is there a real chance that Xi Jinping didn't know that that spy balloon had been launched and was going to drift over the U.S.? Well, that's an intriguing story. Uh, there's speculation that there were some hardliners, some generals uh, who uh, sabotaged this and wanted to uh, have U.S.-China relations get even worse. You know, we won't know until somebody writes a book uh, two or three, four years from now. In the meantime, I think the U.S. and China will have exceptionally rocky relations. This new committee that uh, McCarthy has put together that will look at China's lack of transparency on COVID, their treatment of dissidents, the way they spy on us, uh, their hostile rhetoric toward Taiwan. So I would argue that relations could get even worse before they get better. And then uh, worse before they get better. That's an economic headwind, right? I mean, China yep. was the world's growth engine. And by the way, uh, Xi Jinping and it, Greg and I are going to speak at a conference in New Orleans coming up at the end of March. Maybe we can talk about the shift politically in China uh, for Xi Jinping's commitment to this new notional Chinese ideal as opposed to an economically robust China. In fact, to the detriment. Uh, of an economically robust China. He has shut down Hong Kong. He's going to go after Taiwan. Jack Ma has his picture on milk cartons over in China. Uh, so uh, we're not really concerned about the economic side. We only are concerned about how does that work long time? I've always argued if you don't have a strong economy, you don't have a strong anything. I think the Chinese economy wavers, but I know we're running out of time. I would say this, Michael, China, in my opinion, pales in comparison to Ukraine. I think I think that is is a, a great, great tragedy and has to be resolved. Yet I don't see an exit strategy anytime soon unless there's some way to get rid of Putin, whether it's an angry young general or whether it's oligarchs in Moscow uh, or whether it's his health it, it, with him still in power. I think this uh, horrible story uh, persists for many more months. Mm, isn't that awful? Uh, well, we're going to watch all of this and we're going to keep talking to Greg Valliere, uh, <laughs> our great friend. Greg was director of research at Charles Schwab's Washington Research Group, currently chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF, a global asset management firm. One 
of the smartest people in Washington. He is an insider's insider dialed in. And it's not only that Greg will tell you what's happening. Greg can tell you what it means from a career of vast experience that intertwines Washington and Wall Street. Uh, it's so great for you to join us. Thank you, Greg. Great to see you, Michael. That's it for another forecast, ladies and gentlemen, as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. We'll be back next week to try and bring you some of our brilliant, more brilliant guests and their insights so we gain a little bit of knowledge and a lot of understanding. Thanks for tuning in. Please share us on social media in Naples, Florida for the forecast and for Harry Jennings, our producer. I'm Michael Farr. See you next week. Thanks for listening in to this week's edition of The Farcast. A big thank you to this week's guests, Kenny Polcari, Dan Mahaffey, and Greg Valier. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and you can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. Would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in the podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farm Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farm Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Go beyond the headlines each week with the forecast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained for the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Far Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor or related questions.